Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. She didn't have a phone and she really, really wanted one. And so there was a seventh grader in the room and she said, I know you want a phone. I've had mine since I was in the second grade and I have an addiction and I am really trying hard to not be on this phone as much as it's an issue. And I think you should just be careful, you know, what you ask for. And this young girl, she could have just blended in. She could have just joined the popular opinion of the room, but she went against what everyone else was saying. And she was a leader in that moment. You know, she spoke up about her own experience and she was being honest and she got through to them. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different especially for young girls, signifies. Are you ready for this? I have many people with diverse and impressive backgrounds onto the podcast, for which I feel very lucky. But brace yourselves to meet one today who will knock your socks off. A women's empowerment coach and speaker, award-winning filmmaker for tween girls, a US Air Force veteran and military intelligence airman of the year, also a mother of four, Yes, you heard me correctly. She is all of these things and more. Nicknamed the Audacity Commander for a reason. She has been a culture change agent for the past 20 years, leading troops in war. In the Air Force, she trained fighter pilots on enemy missile systems evasions, led war target strategies during Operation Iraqi Freedom, and led digital transformation from paper to digital mapping of pilot training routes in the UK all while completing her college degree. A strong advocate for diversity and inclusion, she was also a former at-risk middle school teacher, bringing exceptionality out of her students when they succumbed to the low expectations that had been set for them. Also known as the Oprah for tweens, she is also the Hollywood award-winning creator of Soshi Circle, a pre-teen web series critically acclaimed as the modern-day Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. Soshi Circle prepares the next generation to leave the world better than they found it through confidence, inclusion and kindness. It aims to build a strong community of young girls who will lead the future with empathy. This had a massive synergy with all of the Elevate dreams. Currently, she is the Channel Sales Chief of Staff for Microsoft and has over in her nine-year tenure at Microsoft accomplished immensely in areas such as leading product marketing and building the first ever Microsoft Sales University, managing a territory of the largest and most strategic enterprise commercial accounts, just to name a few. Above all these, I would argue that her notable achievements also include being a wife and a mother of four. She is an aspiring foodie, a world traveler, describing one of her most amazing experiences to be able to fly an F-15 Eagle Fighter jet over England and sit champagne afterwards on the tarmac. 
Can't say many of us have had this pleasure, and what a thrilling one it is. Almost as thrilling for me is having you join me on the Elevate podcast. Tiana Clark, thank you so much for being here. I cannot express how much it means to have to met you and have this opportunity to speak with you. A very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so very cool to be here. You know, we, we connected on LinkedIn and it's just so refreshing to meet someone literally on the other side of the world who's just as passionate about confidence and resilience of twin girls as I am. So the pleasure is really all mine. Oh, it's so exciting to have someone with so much passion and drive on the podcast, really. I think this conversation is going to lead and inspire so many others. You're joining me from Chicago, is that correct? Yes, yes, Chicago, and it's warming up, and it's almost spring, and the snow is melting. Oh, well, that's <laughs> that's a positive note, if one, if one had to hear one. Yeah, the winters are brutal in Chicago. But given yes. the situation, other than just the winter, how are you all coping? How is your family doing? I should ask you that first. Yes, yes. No, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been trying. We've had a lot of situations in our family and extended family. So just taking it one day at a time. Yeah, that's all. That is all we can really do. And I'm glad we've got spring to look forward to. I would love to start talking about your extraordinary story and your journey, probably from my point of view at the place that I think had the greatest moment of impact but it was also full of sadness and grief. And the part that I left out of the introduction is that all of your remarkable achievements were done through something that was incredibly adverse and that was being orphaned in while you were only in the sixth grade. I can only imagine how terrifying living through something so tragic must have been for you. I wonder if you'd be able to share more of how, what happened to you at that tender age of 11 shaped the rest of your life? Yes, definitely a moment that shaped me forever. Um, you know, I remember, he says sixth grade, my mother dropped me off to school one day. And <laughs> what's funny is I was being really bratty that day, you know? So I remember, I remember she told me she loved me and I didn't even respond. I like slammed the door because, you know, tweens, that's kind of how we are at that age. And, and then she never picked me back up. I remember just retreating inward at that age and and developing this like uncanny resilience and independence, like, okay, kid, you know, it's it's me and you now. So, (laughs) you know, talking to myself and um, just having that determination, you know, even back then, but definitely shaped, you know, shaped so much. So So can you tell me what happened to her? Yeah, um, so she was murdered. Goodness me. So were you raised by family after that? What happened in terms of the way you grew up? Her parents, my grandparents and her two sisters, they all helped to raise me. So I had, I, I had loving family around me. Lucky. That is so, I mean, but it doesn't replace your mom, obviously. I'm sorry for your loss, first of all, and I'm deeply saddened that that was something that you went through you still refer to this hard time in your life as something you don't wish to be pitied for, which I can completely relate to. But you sort of refer to these difficult times and these hardships as what the experiences that taught you how to take control of your life and defy stereotypes. Such a testament to your incredible resilience. 
how does this aspect of your youth shape how you parent your children today? Well, it definitely taught me to uh, to take con- take control, of course, and, and know that I'm in the driver's seat of my life. Um, it, it could have went so many different ways, but my future was really on me. And it's just interesting for me to have even that perspective at such a young age. You know, I've had some challenges along the way. Don't get me wrong, I certainly did, but you know, I wouldn't have gotten through it without my family and without God. And as a parent, it's like, I just take my responsibility so, so seriously. And my family is just my greatest asset. So, Yeah. Yeah, of course. You're such a role model for your children, though. Really, it's they're, they're so lucky to have you and to have your example of taking something so terrifying, so trying and making it something so positive, which is really the message um, I think that all teachers and uh, mentors want to give their children, really, and parents. You know, it doesn't matter how tough life gets. Don't let it don't let it get you down. Where did you grow up and what kind of neighborhood was it? Because I've heard you speak about it as the murder capital of the world, which in my mind brings up and conjures up images that may or may not be accurate. And I wonder if you could explain more about that and what it was like for you where you were. You know, I once heard a woman talk about growing up in a refugee camp and having a happy childhood. And I could relate because that's the thing about sometimes growing up in a tough environment. It's like you don't really know anything else. So I grew up in Gary, Indiana, which is literally about 20 minutes outside of Chicago. And, you know, I learned so much, though, about self-awareness, survival, how society really works for the underserved. You know, I had that firsthand visibility. I know how to be aware of my surroundings, how to navigate situations and de-escalate situations. I learned community. I mean, there's such, such strong community, my school and my teachers, and I was just surrounded by so much, so much love. And you're right. When you hear about these environments, it definitely conjures up some some images. But, you know, you don't have to have a, a ton of money to be a valuable human and contribute to society. Um I think many people are just now awakening to um, the history of America and the impact that it's had on communities like mine. But I grew up around people who had tons of integrity, tons of love that to, to offer. And I mean, I think now, especially here, people are in the process of educating themselves when this is something that I've lived firsthand. And it's just, it's just remarkable uh, where we are. But yeah, definitely a loving community still. Yeah, that makes all the difference. Your foundation is built around you by the people. So it does take a village. Yeah, I, I'm all about that. Let's talk about a little bit more about your journey then into the U.S. Air Force Intelligence Squadron at the age of 19. How, <laughs> for what inspired you to join that? And And I love the fact that you were really ready to defy all of those who said you were too girly for the military. And then two years later, you were named Airman of the Year. You were flying a fighter jet. What was all this like for you? What were the ambitions driving you? Talk me through this. Yeah, you know, growing up in the inner city, I just always had really big dreams. And and I wanted to see the world. And um, so I'd gotten accepted to the same college that my mom attended and her sister. But my family couldn't really afford the tuition. So... One of my aunts, one of the ones I mentioned earlier, 
she was in the army and she recommended that I join the Air Force to get my degree and see the world. So that's what I did. And I remember when I first arrived in the UK and that was my first duty station. So this is what's funny. When you go to the, well, I'll say the Air Force, at least you go to the Air Force and they have this thing called a dream sheet. The dream sheet is where you put your ideal place to be stationed. Like if I could be stationed anywhere in the world, it would be, and mine was the UK. I had just always wanted to live in the UK. And, but the joke is that whatever you put as your number one choice, you won't get. <laughs> so, so I put that as my number one choice anyway, and I got it. And I was just, I, the day I got that news, I just fell out on the floor and just cried. I was so excited. But um, I remember when I first got there, um, I met my roommate for the first time and she had this airman of the quarter plaque on her bed. And I thought, wow, this base is huge. There are thousands and thousands of people here. And she is airman of the quarter, meaning she's like number one for the quarter. So I thought, wow, what would it take for that to be me? And you know, I, was in the, I was an intelligence analyst, which means I had a very critical role to play on the base, training pilots and, and all of that and so much more that I was doing, uh, delivering like geopolitical country studies and all kinds of stuff. So I had a sponsor who valued my grit and intellect, and he really helped me to focus my impact in the right ways. And so then I went on to win Airman of the Quarter, four quarters straight. And then I won Airman of the Year. So <laughs> the, the military taught me so much about leadership. And, you know, I just really got to learn so much about myself and my capabilities to be able to do those things at such a young age. I mean, you know, come on. So it really strengthened my confidence in myself, too, as well. Amazing. Amazing. What an incredible experience. And how long were you in the Army for? Um, about five years, just shy of five years. And you were studying what in college then? What was your degree in? How did you manage that? I mean, you did this all whilst doing all the other incredible things that you did for the, for the Air Force. How did, what were you studying and how did you manage that? Yeah, the interesting thing is when you join the military, you can't really go to school for like a couple of years because you have to learn the ways of the military and you have to learn your job. So you can't go to school. So I felt like I was behind, you know, like I'm two years behind of, of my peers and they're looking at me like, you're seeing the world, lady. What are you talking about? You're experiencing life, you know? Um, but I got deployed for um, Operation Iraqi Freedom and, and I was deployed and I was like, well, I still have to finish this degree. <laughs> so I was taking classes online while deployed. Um, and so you asked about my, my major. So my minor was in African-American studies and then my major was in political science. Fantastic. What, a, what, a, what an absolute wonderful achievement to look back on and think that you managed all of that during those times. I wonder, though, was it when someone you, you met, I love this quote, the fact that you you didn't you wanted to defy the stereotype about being too girly for the military. Were there those stereotypes within the actual military as well? What was it like for you as a female? I didn't experience any type of stereotypes there. The stereotypes I experienced were more so before I joined people who just have their own thoughts of what it means to be in the military and that that's not something that a girl could do and you know that I wouldn't be cut out for it but turns out I was more than cut out for the military. Love it. Love that. Love the fact that you were able to give that back in, in your own way. 
So you talk about the fact that there were fewer women and fewer black women within the intelligence group that you were in. I sort of want to talk a little bit more about being a female of color in this last year. I'm sorry it's taken us this long to be having such important conversations, given the fact that we all were horrified watching two innocent people, you know, the two big ones, obviously, Breonna Taylor and and George Floyd last year, go through such unjust. But you were 11 when you witnessed it and lived it with your own mother. So I, I guess what I really wanted to find out is, was there rage? Was there anger? Was there frustration for you to have lived through it as a child, witnessed it, like you said, in your whole life? You didn't get a choice, really, to turn your back away. That's the way some of us can turn the TV off when it gets too much. You actually lived through that. So I wonder if you could shed some light for us. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you another one. The year before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, made headlines, I mean, the year before that, I had to go through this personally. So I just told you that when my mother passed, her two sisters helped raise me, okay? Two of the most amazing people you'll ever meet in your life. One of them gets thrown in jail for two months for a crime she didn't commit because she happened to be stopped by a police officer because she was a black woman who fit the description of someone who had committed some crime. And she, <laughs> two months, two months. And so what's interesting is, um, so, you know, you mentioned I work for Microsoft and every year we have our big conference. And so this particular year, um, we were having Brian Stevenson as our guest speaker. And I was, super excited because not only had I read the book Just Mercy, but I bought the kids version for my children. Like we were all reading it and and I was so excited to be able to see him on the stage and maybe even, you know, get an autograph or something. But I, I couldn't go because I had to work tirelessly to help get my aunt released. That that was my life. So I was having like panic attacks every day, worried about her safety. And it's interesting because I start having these conversations with some of my colleagues and they're like, you know, wow, you know, we can't believe this is going on. You know, this was, this was in the eighties and, and gosh, there's so much recent history. I'm like the eighties. I'm like just a few months ago. <laughs> I had to deal with this personally. So this is not, this is not the eighties. This is every day. This is every day. And that, that is, that, that does cause, cause me to be angry. Yeah, of course. And you mentioned, not to mention what it's doing to your health. You mentioned panic attacks. You mentioned the, the trauma of it all. Just you personally, your, the people you come in contact with, your children, I just can't even. And I've been talking to somebody else who was a principal of a school in, in D.C. And she she mentioned that there, you know, that all the stuff we see on television with films like Just Mercy or the the education around the talk that all children get is not something made up. It is absolutely, is real life for, for, and you're living it. These conversations go on all the time. <laughs> the black community, all day, every day. We have to. Wow. Yeah. And it's just, uh, I really hope things change for the better soon. I'm, I can't, I admire you and I admire the things that you're going through. You know, the way you've dealt with it is what is so amazing for me to have connected with you is is see how you've turned something around that was yeah like you say your reality and something we just watch on television and, and take for granted um I'm sorry I really am is all I can say and I hope we can do better 
I really do. Before you joined Microsoft, the other thing, one of the things that you did was you, you were a teacher at a, at a middle school in the inner city. And you went to more economically deprived schools because you wished to make this impact where it was needed most. So admirable. Again, it might be seem obvious a uh, question to be asking you, but what were the greatest challenges the kids that you worked with in the inner city schools most in your eyes? Uh, I've done some work in inner city schools in London, but and I imagine the concerns are universal. But I do think whoever's listening to this podcast will be would really a refresher or a reminder about the children that are almost not forgotten about, but maybe left out um, should be discussed. Well, I mean, there's the obvious, which is that the way it works here, at least, is your property taxes determine the funding that schools get, right? So if you're already in an inner city and the property taxes, right, the, the property values are low, that's going to directly impact the funding that the schools can get. So it just becomes a really vicious cycle. You know, I set high expectations for my students. Um, I gave them hard tests because I wanted them to get used to the language, even in the questions, so that when they take their state tests, they're familiar um, with, the, with the wording even. Some of them don't even understand the question. So I raised expectations um, and just made learning fun and I cared and I showed empathy and all these things. And you know, the, the <laughs> boy who was supposedly couldn't read was the smartest kid in the class. He could read. How do you not know that? How do you not know that? He's the smartest kid in the class. And because of that, well, and because he was one of the most popular students as well, now everyone is excited about learning because it like gave them permission and empowered them to not be afraid to, to learn, to not be afraid to show their intellect. And the girl who was to special education, quote unquote, after the very first test, I saw her in the hallway afterwards. And I said, I was like, yeah, Darlene, you wanna know what you got on your test? And she was like, she looked really scared. And I said, you got an A. She broke down and cried in the hallway and told me that was the first A she'd ever gotten. I didn't change her grades. I didn't give her a different test than everyone else. All I did was have faith in her, see her potential and <laughs> treat her like everyone else, you know? So for me, in my personal experience, um, that was a big challenge. Lots of other challenges. And I know you know what I'm talking about because you said you worked in inner city too. But that one is one that we do have direct control over, mm. you know? Yeah, of course, it probably is a bit of a generalization. I'm sure all teachers don't give up on their students before they begin. But I imagine it's difficult to keep that level of optimism and belief and keeping those kids empowered can't be easy when you've got other issues around you like funding and everything else. And I I understand that it's a vicious cycle that we need to somehow break and maybe it starts more, yeah, it starts differently than just in the class. But who they face every day, the person that stands in front of them every single day is is the most crucial part of, of their upbringing, really. And at times, maybe the only adult they see, that was one of the things I saw, is that they hardly saw their parents because they were working through the nights or sleeping in the day or having three, four jobs and, and there was no grown up watching whether or not the homework was completed or was able to help if they didn't understand the question. So yeah, providing that level of, of just support was, was really crucial in my experience. 
I wonder then if this was one of the things that stemmed your idea for this fantastic project that you've created, which is Soshi Circle. Is something, and I want to get into that a little bit more in depth. I want to talk about this because it's just fantastic and something that clearly has been missing for all of our youngsters. So this, you created Soshi Circle in 2018. You executive produced it. It's a diverse tween web series. You did this with zero filmmaking experience. I don't know if there's anything that you can't do, but let's let's <laughs> let's work on that. And six months afterwards, you then got the the show won a Hollywood Film Festival award, and it was acclaimed as the Mister Rogers Neighborhood for the Next Generation. It embraces diverse ethnicities. It's a cast full of characters from all sorts of backgrounds, whether you're from Mexico, you're Vietnamese or Filipino, you're a mixed race, which I love. Um, it's the first of its kind. And of course, for me, you know, it's just magical because it's completely in line with the Elevate vision. Let's talk about what led you to making such great groundbreaking program and your experiences of it all. Yeah, a lot of it had to do with even my own upbringing and, you know, not really opening up at a young age. And so I know how girls will internalize a lot of these issues that they're dealing with um, and not really speak up and or feel like they have someone to talk to about these things. My school teaching experience, I think what that opened my eyes to is that as much of an impact as I made in one classroom at a time, I just wanted to go big. You know, I, I, I said, how can I make an even bigger impact in, in, in the world? <laughs> So I needed this scalable model, really. And um, the innovative approach was to use video because kids are spending like 70% of their time streaming video. So I wanted to meet them where they are because the traditional mentoring models, uh, they're, not, they're not easy, especially with the, the way society is, is changing. It's, believe it or not, it's hard to get adults signed up to become mentors. Right. So we've got a lot of mentoring organizations and actually along this journey to Soshi Circle, um, one of the people who I consider like a heroine is um, Susan L. Taylor from Essence Magazine, which is like an iconic magazine for black women. And um, when I met her back in 2008, so like 10 years prior, she had left Essence to start the National Cares Mentoring Movement. So this is post Hurricane Katrina and her wanting to just ensure that all, all of these young disadvantaged youth had mentors. So she left and took on this philanthropic work like full time. And I was just so inspired by her. Um, and she asked me to start a local chapter in San Antonio, which is where I was at the time. And I learned so much about the difficulties in, in recruiting mentors. So the agency was about recruiting mentors, not really a a mentoring org, but recruiting them for organizations that already exist. So like Big Brothers, Big Sisters, right? We would recruit them and funnel them into the pipeline. Um, very hard to do, very hard to do. And so I thought, gosh, you know, you know, how can we sort of scale a mentor model beyond that in a way that's also educational and entertaining. And so um, also along that journey, you know, I had three girls of my own, <laughs> three young girls of my own. So now I'm looking at it even from a parent perspective. I'm like, you know, first off, media representation is sorely lacking. 
And if I want to see change, I'm going to have to be the change because I sure as heck can't write a letter to some of the networks and say, you know, as a concerned parent, <laughs> I'd like to see better diversity in your programming. Uh, so I just created it myself. And um, yeah, I had no filmmaking experience. And I think, you know, for me, it's like, if, if there's something that I want to do, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. I mean, I, I, that's just how I see it. You know, yeah. I mean, talk about gumption. It's, it's brilliant, though, that you've given us the hope that if there's something that you want to do, or there's something that's missing out there, that you can't see, but don't wait for it to happen. Be the person that's going to create that and, and go for it, because you don't know what it will lead to. And you're, you know, you're a shining example of that. And I think it's a wonderful message for, for any young girl to hear. Don't wait to feel like you have to get more knowledge, get more worth, get more titles, get more certifications. You know, I could have said, oh, gosh, I don't know filmmaking, so I got to go back to school. Or I got to get some certifications. I didn't, I didn't even think about that. All I thought was, okay, well, what do I have? What do I know? And then how can I fill in the gaps? You know, I don't have to be a director. I can hire a director. <laughs> yeah, to, to make it a team effort as a, and, and really working as a community to try and harness everyone's superpowers and say, you can do that part very well. You've got that. You've got this part. Let's put this together, which is really the dream work, isn't it? That's exactly what we want our, our children to grow up thinking about is not trying to get everything or be everything that's impressive. So what was it like for you? What, were there any hiccups? Did you learn to direct and produce and all of those great things? <laughs> I did not learn to direct or produce, but I did a great job leading that team. <laughs> but no, it was really cool, though. One of the most amazing parts of it was when we did the auditions. Um, and we had, you know, this long line of girls who would come in and audition for the parts and we would give them a side to read. And uh, this is what's funny. So I'd never even done an audition before. So my cousin who lived in Los Angeles where we did every, all the filming, uh, one of her best friends had gone on so many auditions for like modeling and acting. So she kind of knew how these things were run. So literally before we let the first girl into the audition room, she gave me like a 30 minute crash course on how to run an audition. <laughs> so the funny thing is the girls come in. Well, I don't know if this was funny. It was very touching. They would come in and they would read the script for us. They were so appreciative um, that we were creating something like this because, I mean, we had diverse girls coming in who didn't see themselves represented. They didn't see the scenarios and the situations that they faced represented. And, and they were glad to see that. Yeah. And, and the storylines resonated so perfectly for them because, A, you've worked in inner city schools, you've got three daughters of your own, and you were in a position of being able to write scripts that probably resonated in ways that you probably were in their heads and they didn't realize how you got there. I've, I've been watching them with my daughter. And I have to say, for anyone listening, whether you have a teen girl or not, it's a or tween girl. It is such a wonderful snippet reminder of what it's like to be a youngster again um yourself really i mean i it, yes the, the program's been aired in 2018 or now you know in, in the in this generation but i think that we can relate to so much of the issues that you talk about and have you had incredible sort of letters of appreciation or have, have girls 
what's been the impact f- from releasing these web series? And are you still filming them? Are they still happening? Yes. So I would say some of the biggest impact has been through conversation. So when we created Sochi Circle, we really each, like you mentioned, there's snippets. So each episode is only like three, four minutes because they're really a launch pad for a deeper conversation. So I remember in one of the film festivals, um, there was a young girl in the audience and she was with her dad. And, and after she watched it, she stood up and asked a question. And he was like, my child's asking the question. And she's like, dad, you know, that's me. Well, that is me on the screen. And, and that gives me the greatest joy to, to know that it's resonating. We've also um, done a lot of screenings in schools. So we'll go to the schools and we'll actually screen the episodes and just have dialogue. And the girls, oh, they, they just resonate so well with it. And there's a lot of peer-to-peer educational value that takes place as well. So I'll give you an example. We were screening at a school and I had a combination of like fifth, sixth, and seventh grade girls in the, in the auditorium. And um, one of the episodes, I don't know if you guys got to this one yet, but one of the episodes is where Lennon wants a phone and her parents tell her she can't get one until she's 16. So um, she's being teased by other girls and she's talking to her friends about it. So I always ask whenever I, whenever I'm with the, the girls, I always ask, okay, like who's got a phone? And, and I love to see how many of them have a phone, how many of them don't. And it sparks a lot of conversation, not only about the phone, getting one, but again, it's a launch pad to conversation. So then we start talking about the pros and cons, the risks. They start showing me how they get around their parental controls. They're like, oh, Miss Tiana, check this out. This is what we do. And I'm like, oh, really? (laughs) So I'm learning a lot. But one of the fifth graders, um, she mentioned that she didn't have a phone and she really, really wanted one. And so there was a seventh grader in the room and she said, "Um, I know you want a phone. I've had mine since I was in the second grade. And I have an addiction and I am really trying hard to not be on this phone as much as it's an issue. And I think you should just be careful, you know, what you ask for. And I mean, you can't, it's invaluable when a peer gives you the advice, like you're, you're not going to listen to your parents saying that, right? And this young girl, she could have just blended in. She could have just joined the popular opinion of the room, but she went against what everyone else was saying. And she was a leader in that moment. You know, she spoke up about her own experience and she was being honest and she got through to them. Yeah, there's so much, there's so much power in in having somebody, our teens respect. And not that I'm saying parents aren't, you know, not no disrespect to all of us parents that are trying our hardest, but ultimately they really don't want to hear from us, do they? They, they, they need it. They need to hear it from somebody else. And yeah, it, there's so much value in having peer-to-peer conversations of sound advice, particularly. Yeah, that that makes a massive difference. And for the most part, they have that inner wisdom. It's just a matter of pulling it out and and not being afraid that it's not popular opinion. Um, but a lot of times, you know, I, I worried about that. Like, okay you know do they really know what's going on a lot of times they do they're a lot smarter than we think I'm going to quote from you that I think is fantastic which speaks a little bit about what we just said which is no voice is small all voices are powerful I really love this because I think any any young person listening to this 
can feel empowered and hopefully inspired. I'm a thousand percent behind this, but what is the message that you want young girls who don't have the confidence to believe in themselves or believe that they alone can make a difference? I know your story is one of absolute incredible inspiration, but is there a message that you can give to young girls through your own experiences and through what you're learning through Social Circle? Yeah, it's one of those things that <laughs> the same message that I need to give to young girls, I need to give to adult women too. <laughs> and that is that, you know, you are enough, right? <laughs> like you are enough. And we have this inner wisdom and this inner power. And, you know, it's just a matter of, of commanding it. At such a young age, you're just, you're competing with so many popular, you know, opinions and, and you're trying to navigate and find your own way. And the thing that I tell my daughters all the time is just like, you have to be yourself. You need to be a leader. You cannot follow the crowd because um, you have your own inner wisdom and I need you to be responsible for your own actions, right? And and sometimes that that robs them of the confidence, right? Because they want to make sure that you know, they're there with the in crowd and, and it can be it can be detrimental. So it's just trusting yourself, trusting your gut and, and knowing that, you know what, at the end of the day, you know, I'm responsible for me. And, um, you know, you just, you just you just have to keep going. So, you know, you do you've done and, and along that line, speaking of the fact that your young girls, uh, you know, are responsible for themselves and you try and teach them to be their authentic selves, which is a buzzword at the moment, I know, but I, I do think it's important for us to be true to who we are, whether we're a teen girl or a grown woman. I, I think that's that's absolutely true. I love one of the projects that I read about that you were involved in, which was a sort of high school students who created the People Project magazine to showcase different cultures around the world uplift people of color and promote diversity. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that came about, what your involvement might have been in it, and what we can do to inspire other young people who might have similar aspirations and want to create a whole new magazine full of things that they want to see represented. You know what? Do you know why I resonate so well with the People Project group? It's because they did exactly what I did with Sochi Circle. They said, gosh, be, would be great to have some type of media that <laughs> showcases different cultures around the world and promotes diversity and we don't see it. So, oh, guess what? We're going to create it. And it just goes back to what we were just saying, you know, when you're your own person and when you can just step into to who you are and not worry about everyone else and what everyone else is thinking, right? So they actually reached out to me. They found me. I think they might have found me on LinkedIn. I'm like, what are you doing on LinkedIn? <laughs> but no, they found me and they had never featured a an adult before in the magazine. The magazine is around, you know, educating and, and bringing awareness to high schoolers. Um, but they, they wanted to feature me because we had so much in, in common with what we were accomplishing. So I think, you know, for young people who have similar aspirations, it's like, just do it. I mean, they've got technology at their fingertips in ways we never did. They have the capabilities to do these things. Um, and they they just have so much potential, it's so much that they can accomplish if they only just take that step forward. They can do it. Amazing. And their resourcefulness is so admirable as well, isn't it? And I think that highlights 
one of the many benefits of social media. I know social media gets all sorts of, you know, it get, and, and rightfully it gets, it gets a lot of bad press, but there are some incredible things that come out of it. And I think if we can keep encouraging youngsters to use social media for the force of good and force of change, then, then yeah, yeah, we can achieve some great, great stuff, especially this last year, seeing how, you know, technology has completely transformed the world. It is important for us to feel, yeah, that we can stay connected in that way. Okay, so let me let me talk to you now about all the different hats that you wear. We've discussed them in, in a little bit in, in, like you said, compartmentalized your life a little bit. But let's put it all together because I think it's important for us to create this picture. You're a mum of four. You work at Microsoft. You create these web series called Social Circle. And you have a coaching business called the driver's seat. Is that correct? Have I covered everything so now? Or is there more? Do you want to do you want to fill me in? Have I missed anything? No, yes, yes. The driver's seat experience. This is this is something new that I'm starting actually, because um I think that we have had an initial definition of success. And as we get older, more experienced, as we, you know, go through making all the milestones that we set out to hit and we start to look around like, hmm, is this, is this what, is this all there is, right? You know, is, is there more than this? I mean, cause right now I'm, I'm getting up every morning and I'm hitting the snooze button about 10 times. I I, I'm like, is it Friday yet? You know, I, <laughs> I'm not as present for my family and friends, you know, there's got to be more. And um, so I'm inviting women to live audaciously, like take these bold moves and risks and really ask yourself, you know, are you living in your purpose? Are you living the life that you actually designed? Or are you living the life that was maybe told to you at a young age that has changed over time, in terms of your definition of success? And so um, I am helping women to accomplish anything they want, even if they lack the experience, confidence, clarity, or a roadmap. Like we can, we can go, we can go get it with the driver's seat principles. Fantastic! That sounds incredible. So, uh, fant- really great that you've got this whole other chapter developing, and you're doing this work for women. I think the idea of redefining success is hugely important. I speak about it all the time. It's on all oh, my, um, really? so yeah, yeah. I think we've been socially conditioned through osmosis, through media, I, I, all sorts of different things to identify what we, what we call success. And I invite so many young people to think about redefining success because I think adults get to it almost too late and we need, uh, uh, you know, they've lost such an incredible amount of time with their families and the people that matter the most to them and possibly this is the year that all of this will come together in the rude awakening of it all but um yeah no for me for me personally you know losing my mom uh, at a young age really made me value every day as something that's a gift and what are we doing chasing these other things if we're not there with the people that matter to us because we don't know how long we have with each of the people around us and and then now in my mid 40s myself, I all I can think about is what I want to leave behind <laughs> for people to 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 remember and hold on to and how we can, yeah, like you say, leave this world a slightly better place than we found it, which yeah, is so important to me. 
so you're work, you continue to do your, your work at Microsoft and tell me a little bit about what you do there and how you created their first university. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to learn about that as well. Yeah, you know, I've been there almost 10 years now. So I think I'm on my sixth job or something like that. And at one point I had moved into sales. And when I did, there was no real like onboarding. So, I mean, Microsoft's a behemoth, right? So there's just so much, so many like complexities and we have huge revenue targets. And so I thought, well, what would be great is if we had a, a sales university for people to new sellers coming in who could understand the complexities, the systems, the processes, the products, the services that we sell, all these things, and really be able to put their best foot forward out there in the world when we're really moving digital transformation and impacting you know, lives on such a grand scale through technology. It's, it's really important that, um, that we can do that successfully. And so I created sales services sales university <laughs> somebody's gonna do it wow you clearly do you never suffer from imposter syndrome is that something that just the vocabulary doesn't exist in your brain or no no seriously I do I have I have but you know what um you have to remind yourself of everything that you've done and, and everything that you are because a lot of times you're stuck in that moment you know like I'm feeling imposter syndrome about this one thing Okay, but let's take a step back, right? And I'm talking way back. Like for me, for example, if I'm going out to to speak, right? And maybe I've got some some butterflies and I'm like, oh, okay, there was a big crowd today. Oh my well, back when you were in the fourth grade, <laughs> you went to a Catholic school and you had to do the reading and response in front of the entire student body up to eighth graders. You were terrified. You did great. <laughs> and then you went on your brief generals, international generals at the at the Pentagon. You got this, right? So it's like it's like scaling out from that moment and reminding yourself of who you really are and what you've done. And like you've been here before and you even if you haven't been in that exact moment before, you've been in a situation before where you felt, right? And then you realize that I'm enough. So you have these conversations with yourself? I, I, I do. I love it. I talk to myself. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it's incredibly powerful. I had an incre a wonderful guest on my previous podcast called Mo Gaudet. He names his brain, and, and I've adopted this philosophy. Um, yeah, and we have conversations with my Becky all the time. Um, I try, and Becky and I sit down, and we have a I give her I give her a talking to when I when I feel these voices of doubt creeping in, and that's one of the things I use in my Elevate programs try and get but it's like it's lovely to have someone who does all of these things naturally anyway reinforce that this is something that works as a, as a strategy to overcome self-doubt yeah it's it's fantastic it's really great so I wanted to really end the interview if that's cool with you although I think I could talk to you for hours who your female who your female role models are or who they were growing up um and what you wish for young girls to take away from that? The women in my inner circle are my role models. You know, I know there's a great many women to admire in the world. And, um, but I think sometimes we can look right beside us to find the most inspiration. You know, my mom was a kind woman with a beautiful heart. She was everyone's favorite. You know, my grandmother, so strong, so wise, you know, she, um, 
delivered all her children at home with the midwife. So me delivering my last two at home was like homage to granny. You know, she picked cotton, walked for miles to school at five o'clock in the morning after milking the cows. I mean, the, my mother's two sisters, I told you all about them, the most amazing people, um, two of the most amazing people in my life. My best friends, my closest cousin, they were all critical in launching Sochi Circle. They, I have friends flying cross country multiple times to come out and support me in California and they have families of their own. So they role model friendship <laughs> for me. Um, I talked about Susan L. Taylor, this amazingly graceful, woman. I mean, she rolls models, role models grace. She role models uh, sacrifice, giving up an, an amazing career to go and do the work that she was called to do. You know, I told you about my half sister who I met when I was about 24. She'd been, she's older than me. She'd been in corporate America longer than me. She really role modeled advocacy for me, you know, when I'm in these corporate environments. So these women are right in front of me. I don't really have to look far for female role models. And I would just say to young girls, you know, first off, look to yourself, look to yourself for role model and, and just really think about um, the types of values that you want to have and who's really doing those things, right? You talked, you talked a minute ago about there's a shortage of that. And so we just have to be very, very careful of who we look up to and who we emulate at that age. It's amazing. I, I'm grateful. You're right. I think the women around us who surround us, clearly they've made you who you are and watching your journey and learning about what you're doing is a real credit to everyone that helped raise you and, and bring you to the point that you are. And I think what you say about friendship, which is a family we create, is equally important as the family you're given. Uh, you know, And we may not have control over where we are born and who, who, who our family by blood is, but the people that we create and surround ourselves with, we do have choices around. And I think that is another massive, important message for young girls to hear. I think the social circle programs do a great job of that too, because I love the way the girls champion each other when they're going through their little dilemmas and their little problems. It's lovely. All the information for anyone looking to empower their youngsters and themselves, moms, teachers, anyone out there, I will link everything in the show notes and I invite you to get in touch with Tiana if you have questions about being audacious and taking that leap forward. Please do. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's been such a wonderful opportunity to be able to chat and hear more about all your fantastic initiatives that you've got going on. Thank you, Tiana. Thank you for inviting me. And you know, one day I'm going to come out there to Singapore and <laughs> we can meet in person <laughs> how much I would love that I look forward to it already and that's everything from us today thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others if you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast I would also be hugely grateful I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.